So James this morning is, is giving us an exhortation and a warning, and it begins in a narrow sense, and then it broadens as you continue through the passage. And so in the narrow sense, he begins with a warning to those who are teaching and those who would aspire to be teaching. You saw in verse 1, he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, of course, we need to consider the context here in that James's church that he's writing to would have been shaped by the realities of the Jewish synagogue. And the Jewish synagogue placed an incredibly high level of respect and value on those who would teach God's word. In fact, the word rabbi actually means great one. And so those who were given an office of teaching, of preaching, were highly respected. And so James recognized that it was common for people to aspire to be pastors, to be teachers of God's word with bad motives, that people would aspire to hold such a position for the social clout, recognition, and respect that came with that. And so what he's doing in verse 1 is he's lovingly warning us, not many of you should become teachers because it is a greater pastoral responsibility. And what he's doing is he's, he's not necessarily saying you shouldn't be pastors. He's not discouraging people from being pastors. He's simply encouraging them to check their motives. And he does this by emphasizing the great responsibility and the ensuing judgment of those who teach God's word. Really what he's doing is he's elevating the authority of scripture. He's saying it is a big deal to communicate God's word. And so you better be very careful. And if you aim to do it, make sure that your motives are proper. See, James understood then what we experience now. And that's that there is a form of cultural Christianity in which if we're not careful with how we preach God's word, we can begin to worship a God of our imagination rather than a God of divine revelation. We begin to worship this God that we have created rather than the God of scripture. There's a lot of teachings that, that look good that sound good, that have emotional appeal, even teachings that might have helpful ethics, but they're not consistent with God's word. It's why Paul instructs Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 2 through 4, he says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. James is saying teaching God's word is a big responsibility because God's word is our ultimate authority. And while James has pastors in mind here in verse 1, I think it's right to apply this principle to anyone with influence and anyone with a desire to teach God's word. There is a healthy level of responsibility and weight that we should feel. 
So whether you're a teaching pastor, whether you're a worship pastor, whether you're a home team leader, a next-gen small group leader, we need to understand the weight of our words when teaching his word. And then as we move into verse 2, James broadens his argument. So it moves from being very specific and narrow to pastors and teachers to really applying to the words of everyone. Verse 2, he says, For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. And so James is saying, certainly teachers will be judged with strictness when we proclaim God's word. But Matthew 12 tells us that every single one of us will stand before God and give an account for every spoken word. And so James is now going broad. He's saying all of us fall in the words that we speak. All of us say things that we shouldn't say. He's saying no matter who you are or where you're from, one thing that we all have in common is that from good morning to good night, we all communicate all day long. Whether that's text or email or talking on the phone or talking in person or whatever other forms of communication exist, we are doing it a lot. Various studies show exactly how much we talk every day. For some of you, it's probably a lot more. For some of you, it's probably a lot less. But what all of the studies agree on is that we are individually saying thousands of words every single day. That we are highly dependent on words and the ideas of communication. Right? We, we use our words to communicate thoughts that we have and ideas that we have and opinions that we have, emotions that we're feeling throughout the day. I mean, think about how dependent we are on words. Um, imagine a day or a week with no words. Right? Imagine a Sunday morning when you come in and you're not greeted, where we can't talk to one another in the, in the lobby. When we come in and we can't corporately pray, we can't sing together. We can't preach. We can't go to home team this week and talk about the message. Now, I know some of you introverts are dreaming right now. You're like, yes, like say no more. I'm good with it. We just come in a room and we'll just sit and all be quiet for an hour, then leave. So, so let me pull you out of that dream. And you extroverts, before you get too anxious and start sweating, let me pull you out of that dream. Because no matter what you prefer, the reality is that we're dependent on communication and that we all communicate all day long. And that's exactly what James is going to address here. James wants to get into the heart of our words. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say words, but what I mean to be clear is any communication, right? So you're not off the hook for a text or uh, a Snapchat or a video chat, like words. Anything we're communicating. So when James says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able also to bridle his whole body. The point that he's making is twofold. First is he's saying that there's no such thing as someone who does not stumble in their words. James is including himself. We all stumble in what we say. We all say things we should not say. We all have put our foot in our mouth and went, whoops, I probably shouldn't have said that. But secondly, he's illustrating the difficulty of controlling the tongue by argument from greater to lesser. 
In other words, he's saying, if you can control your tongue, you'd be able to control your entire body. Another way he would say it is, if you can refrain from sinning with your tongue, you'd be able to refrain from all other sin as well. Because that is how prevalent the sin of the tongue is and how difficult it is to control it. Now, before we move forward in the passage, I want us to pause. I want to give you two considerations. I want to give you two warnings, two pitfalls that I think lie ahead of us today. I want to go ahead and point them out to you, and I want to, I want to help you avoid them. The first one is this. James has just said we all fall in many ways. There is a point here where we're going to be tempted to believe that because something is normal, it is acceptable. We're, we're going to be tempted here to say, well, James just said we all fall short. So it's not a big deal, right? I mean, everyone does it. Everyone fails. We all fall short. James isn't saying that to minimize our words. We should be careful to never excuse our own sin on the grounds of someone else's. Right? Our own sinful words cannot be excused on account of the brokenness around us. And yet we'll be tempted to do that. We'll be tempted to, to minimize our sin because of the sin around us. Scripture is clear that the church is to be distinct from the world. Martin Lloyd-Jones said the best way for the church to attract the world is to be distinctly different from it. And that includes our words. In other words, when everyone else is doing it, was spoken in my house, that did not work with my mom, right? That probably does not or did not work with your mom or your mom's mom. And it will not work before God one day when we give an account for our words and we say, well, everyone else was doing it. That's not James's point here. My grandmother used to say that right is right if nobody is right. And wrong is wrong if everyone is wrong. And so avoid the pitfall here of thinking that because something is normal, that it is acceptable. Know that when we try and normalize our sin, it's just not a proper excuse to say everyone else does it. This warning is for everyone. And so resist the whispers of Satan that might say that gossip or slander or flattery or innuendo is a form of acceptable sin simply because it's common. The second warning that I want to kind of give you this morning to, to look out for as we move forward and in the coming days, months, and years of your lives is this tendency to begin a case for self-defense and self-justification, right? So, so when we talk about sin, when we talk about ways in which we fall short, it's easy for all of us, especially myself, to immediately begin down a path of self-justification, Right? It's easy for me when I get in an argument with someone to start in my head going through all of the reasons why I'm justified and right in what I said and did, and they're wrong. Right? We're all really, really good lawyers for ourselves. We do it in a lot of ways, right? So we say, well, it wasn't gossip. I, I was just sharing a prayer request about how ugly her outfit is all the time. We need to pray for her, Right? Well, well it, it was justified because they said something about me first. I mean, they, they, they said that first, so I can say that. Or probably one of the more common ones is we adopt this no harm, no foul policy. 
Well, it wasn't sinful as long as it doesn't get back to them. As long as they don't hear it, as long as it doesn't end up hurting them, it's not a big deal. Listen, avoid the temptation as we move forward to create a self-defense, right? If you're a believer, there's no need for you to spend time defending or justifying your own sin. So I just want to encourage you to put your walls down, take off your lawyer hat, take off your self-defense hat, and know that you can do that in freedom because if you're in Christ, you're justified by the blood of Christ. And so a proper understanding of justification means that we are free to confess, to acknowledge our sin. We don't have to make a defense because right now, Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of God defending us based on his blood, not our own good works. This gives us a freedom to embrace our brokenness. We can breathe. When James says we all fall short, we don't have to say, well, not me. I'm pretty good here and here and here. But instead we can say, you know, I am broken in this way. I'm sinful in this way. Praise God that there's still hope because of the cross of Christ, that I'm forgiven because of what Jesus did. I hope we can avoid those, those pitfalls as we move forward, that we're free to embrace the reality of James 3 and that our words have fallen short because of the cross of Christ. So as we continue, we'll, we'll look at verses 3, 3 through 6. It's, it's this idea that our words are a big deal. James illustrates that in these verses, 3 through 6. We read this earlier. You saw that he likens the tongue to a small rudder on a ship and the bit in the mouth of a horse. Now listen, I know very little next to nothing about ships, but I know that a rudder is the thing in the back of the ship that turns and it directs the entire ship. Right? The idea that James is making is that a rudder is very, very small, and yet this very small instrument determines the course of the entire ship. In the same way, the bit that we put in the mouth of a horse is a very, very small instrument, and yet it controls a very large, powerful animal. Something small that has great power. James is likening the tongue to this. Though the tongue is small, it wields an, a tremendous amount of power. He goes on in verse 5 to show us that just like a tiny little spark creates a forest fire. Surely you've seen the forest fires on the news that happen. And just this huge, ridiculous amount of heartbreaking damage that began with a spark. He says in the same way, the tongue with just a word can create just a spark that creates a world of unrighteousness rampant throughout our culture. Here's the bottom line that he's trying to prove here. I want you to hear this very clearly today. Our words have significance. Our words matter tremendously. Paul David Tripp says it this way in his book, War of Words, which I would strongly commend to all of you. He says this, we need to recognize how wordy our lives actually are. Talk seems so normal, so ordinary, so unimportant, so harmless. Yet there are few things we do that are more important. 
Words are powerful, important, significant, and it was meant to be that way. When we speak, it must be with the realization that God has given our words significance. He has ordained them to be important. Words were significant at creation and at the fall. They are significant in redemption. God has given words value. So we must do all we can do to assign words the importance Scripture gives them. I really want to sit in this for a moment, that words are significant. I want you to go home this afternoon and sit on that, chew on that. Our words matter. And it doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are. Your words matter. Our day is full of thousands of words and conversation becomes so ordinary and we need to understand that it matters. I love that Paul David Tripp here, he recognizes that it is God who assigns significance to our words. We, we cannot create or diminish the intrinsic value and power of our words. God has ordained that our words can matter. Our job is to assign the appropriate amount of weight to them in light of God's word. So we cannot diminish or control their importance, but we can work to assign them the importance that scripture gives. Uh, another way we could say it negatively is this. We should never devalue the effect of our words in a way that scripture does not. Scripture shows that our words are important because God has, has divinely decreed that our words are important. And so we need to not try and pretend as if they're not. If God says they're important, we must recognize that. I want to I show you briefly here some scripture that illustrates the value of our words. It's through a word that God created the entire world. In Genesis 1, verses 3, 6, 9, 11, 14, 20, 25, and 26, we say, He said... And God said, certainly God could have created the world in another way. Certainly he didn't have to speak to do it. And yet God demonstrates through creation power of words. His words specifically. It was through words that God instructed Adam and Eve on the ways of life. How to prosper. How to live. What not to do. And then it was through words in Genesis 3 that the serpent planted seeds of doubt. He used his words to challenge and diminish God's words when he asks in Genesis 3.1, Did God really say? Not long after that, God comes to Adam and Eve and Adam uses his words to put blame on Eve. And then Eve uses her words to put blame back on the serpent and ultimately on God who gave her that serpent. Words are significant. The book of Proverbs is overflowing with passages that give focus to the weight of our words. It references the dangers of a lying tongue, a word spoken in haste, the demise of arrogant lips, foolishness of constantly having to air our own opinions, 
the deceitfulness of a flattering tongue, but it also gives the power of positive words, that a word timely placed is sweet to the soul, that a brother who speaks in truth is sweet, the correction of someone who is wise. And most plainly in Proverbs 18, 21, that the tongue has the power of life and death. The Bible says our words matter. We should all ask, are my words mostly giving life or mostly giving death? In Romans 10, Paul shows us that the Holy Spirit primarily uses our words to rescue unbelievers from eternal damnation and bring them into a right relationship with Jesus. Paul asks the question, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. It's through words that souls are eternally rescued from hell and brought into union with Jesus for eternal life. Words matter. One of my favorite sermons that I would commend to you is by a pastor named C.J. Mahaney. And the sermon is titled, Cultivating a Culture of Encouragement. It's an exposition on Ephesians 4, 29, which says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. In a sermon, he admonishes the church to become a place that cultivates encouragement in a way that we are tuned in to one another, that we are looking for ways that God is working in each other's lives and quick to point that out. So that every conversation we walk away from, someone might leave us feeling encouraged, feeling highly aware of God's grace in their life, of his sanctifying work in their life. Ephesians 5, 19 through 20 later commands us to regularly address one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs because something special happens when we come together and we sing words together. That's why the words that we sing matter. They are significant. Words matter. And this is not an exhaustive list. We could go through scripture after scripture after scripture as it demonstrates the value that God has assigned to our words. But we also know the power of words through our own personal experience, don't we? We've likely all felt the power of walking away from a conversation feeling supremely encouraged or overwhelmingly disheartened. Right? We've all gotten off the phone. We've all walked away and gotten in our car and felt fresh newness of life. And we've also done that and felt defeated and broken because of words. We've all experienced the sudden mood change, right? And what was a lovely day. But one misplaced sarcastic word that cut deeper than we intended it to suddenly kind of blows up a good day, right? If you're like me, husbands know this well. 
just one, one sarcastic thing, ill-spoken, p- poorly placed. I think lots of people have echoes in their head still. From a family member, a coach, a friend, maybe a previous romantic relationship that was really quick to point out weaknesses in you and really slow to recognize strengths. Some of you would attribute your current career success to the timely and life-giving words of a teacher or a parent that was just able to say, you know, you're really good at this. You should think about. You know, you're really talented here. You should try. And you are who you are today because of a well and timely spoken word. Because if we dig deep enough, we all have indwelling doubts and fears because of words that somebody planted years ago. And we also have words of encouragement, truth, and advice that sustain us and strengthen us on difficult days. Because words matter. The Bible says that our words matter to the utmost significance and experience shows us both the positive effect and the negative effect of words. And so we need to ask ourselves again, when we speak, do we speak as if our words have significance? Or do we speak as if they don't matter? I remember the first time I ever held a gun. I was terrified because I understood the weight of what I was holding had the power to cause irreversible, life-changing damage to myself or to someone else around me. I held it really far away. I held it straight down. I was very, very nervous. I felt the weight of that gun in my hand and what it could do. James is trying to get us to feel that way with our words. The weight of our words. Do we we recognize our words as as life-altering bullets in a gun directed at everyone around us? Or do we just spew them without any consideration for the consequences? They matter. And it's after James spends some time showing us that they matter that he returns to what he alluded to in verse 2. He's already told us that we all stumble in many ways. And he, in, he reiterates our inability to tame the tongue here in verses 7 through 8. As we keep reading, it says this. For every kind of beast and bird or reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. So not only are our words abundant and powerful in the most fundamental ways, but we do not have any ability to control our words. This is bad news, right? Our words are incredibly significant, and yet we cannot tame them. James's point here is that the treachery of the tongue cannot be resolved by normal human means. This means we can change our location, we can change our education, we can change our relationships, and yet the tongue will not be fixed. It's because our problems are deeper than our mouths. Consider James 3, 10 through 12. 
He says, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. James's point here is that what's coming out is what is within. We mentioned earlier that this passage applies to everyone. And we saw in verse 2 that we all stumble here in many ways. And James is bringing clarity here that the reason we all stumble is because we are all fundamentally broken. That what's coming out of our mouths is a reflection of our hearts. And this all-inclusive language that James is using is communicating what we believe to be the doctrine of total depravity. It's that humans are fundamentally depraved. We are fundamentally broken. We read in Romans 15, I'm sorry, 5, 15 through 20, and Ephesians 2, it's so good, go read that this afternoon, that every human being is counted guilty because of the inherited sin from Adam. And that inherited original sin leads us into personal sin. Our words are sinful because our hearts are sinful. Therefore, we do not need a spiritual tongue doctor, but a heart doctor. We don't need a speech therapist. We need a cardiologist. We are born in brokenness, and that brokenness is in us, and the tongue is not the problem. The brokenness is the problem. The tongue is just what happens when brokenness speaks. So what do we do now? Right? Thanks, James. Hey, it's really, really significant. Your words matter a lot. They're incredibly powerful. And it's really impossible to tame them because you're broken. We don't pray and go home here, right? We can't. So what? And James has this this bad reputation of being really legalistic and works-based and performance-based. But James is really quite gospel-centered if we pay attention. And, And we always need to read James with the backdrop of the gospel. And so as we ask the question, so what, Sinclair Ferguson gives us three very brief, very helpful gospel elements that we have to have in the background as we look at James. So he's going to give us three things. The first one is this. We realize that the depth of our sin, the pollution of our heart, and our need for saving grace is all evidenced in the use of our tongue. Our tongue just tattles on us. That's what it is, is the the, the brokenness of our tongue is just evidence of the brokenness of our heart. Our tongues reveal the realities of our heart. That means our pride, our jealousy, our self-righteousness, our unfair judgments, our lack of respect, our shamedness of the gospel, our cowardice, all of that just gets revealed in our words. And the only solution to this brokenness is the hope for forgiveness of sins on the cross of Christ, where every sinful word and every broken motive behind that sinful word was paid for on the cross of Christ. So for believers today, there's hope because you know, yes, I am broken. Yes, I speak in ways I shouldn't. 
Praise God for the grace of Jesus that he died on my behalf. If you're not a believer, know that the, the sinfulness of your words will be paid for in full in hell for all of eternity when you stand before God. But in Christ, there is hope. If you'll repent of your sins, put your faith in Jesus, there's hope. The second thing we need to recognize is that you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. So for those that have repented of their sins, put their faith in Christ, you are a new creation. James says this in James 1.18. He says that we are the first fruits of his creatures. This means I may not be the mature man that I want to be, but thank God that I'm not the old man that I used to be. That new birth in Christ creates new affections and new desires in us that are not yet complete. But be encouraged, find hope that in Jesus, he is so committed to sanctifying us that we are daily being made a new creation. It's slow, sometimes it's painful, but we're being renewed day by day. And this happens through the third gospel observation, and it's that we continue in the word continue in the word. I love Psalm 119, nine through 11. It says this, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You see, as we digest God's word, it begins to form our thinking, our affections, our faculties in a wonderfully sanctifying way, right? It creates in us humility and grace and wisdom and discernment and love. It attacks the tongue at the root. And it's only when we saturate our lives with God's word and God's, God's community and gospel-centered conversation that our heart is transformed in a gospel-centered way that we begin speaking in ways that give life. It's only then that our tongues will be transformed from a venomous bite to a spring of life. It's only then will you walk away from conversations leaving people feeling loved and encouraged and keenly aware of God's grace and sovereignty in their life rather than walking away leaving a trail of tears behind you because our words hurt. See, there's no shortcuts. This is what's frustrating. Is there's no shortcuts. There's no just don't talk anymore. Right? Although sometimes speaking less is very helpful. You can't just muzzle up because eventually it always comes out. It's got to start in the heart. Only then do our words become transformed. So every word that we speak carries great significance. But by God's grace, we can acknowledge that sin, we can repent of it, we find forgiveness at the foot of the cross where all of our sins are wiped away. And then we spend time in the words so that our broken words by grace might be turned into 
life-giving words. That we as a people might be distinct from the world in that our words give life rather than death. 